Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. And my guest today is Natalia Humenyuk, Ukrainian journalist, reporter, founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab, founder of co-founder of Hromatske, one of the greatest Ukrainian independent media. Hello, Natalia. Hi, good to see you finally. Yes, good to to have you here and thanks so much for coming here. Uh, Let me remind you that uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spent a big amount of your support to help people affected by this war. And today we we are going to talk about human stories, about how what it what it is like to to live through the war because Natalia is traveling a lot uh, in Ukraine through Ukraine she's one of the uh, best known Ukrainian reporter uh, let me let me start from the from the question of uh, uh, you you traveled in in different places maybe can you tell a few stories what places what stories maybe uh, impressed you the most okay Um, so since the first days of the war, I technically been to all of the affected areas apart from the occupied areas, from Odessa to Severodonetsk, from Kharkiv to Kiev, Chernihiv region. You know, I'm now working on the biggest story on the Kherson and southern occupied areas. Um, and if in the early stage I was more focused on the frontline reporting, you know, the actual stories, now there are two things I'm basically basically doing not just uh, on my own by uh, with our team uh, within one of the project which is called the reckoning project Ukraine testifies we are working on the documenting war crimes and creating you know stories based on on this topic but on another one uh, which we we were given it a different title it's called uh, life in war uh, and that's exactly why what, what was my initiative that we cannot portray Ukraine just like the place of the uh, where atrocities were committed. It's extremely important, and we are really deeply involved in all those horrific, uh, horrific uh, events. However, I do see a lot of life in in what's going on. Um, I, I do write a lot for the international media. I write for, for, for the Washington Post, for the Guardian, but first of all, like the larger pieces for the Rolling Stone and for the the, the, the Atlantic. So probably the, the stories I'm working now, I mean, they are the most darling for me, you know, like your latest story. And one is about the grassroots Ukrainian democracy, which should be, you know, like published now, uh, really based on my talks to the Ukrainians, all over the country and about how do they see for what they are fighting. Uh, another one is really uh, the, the next two, they are more based on the uh, life of the occupied territories, southern occupied territories, which I do think are not yet fully understood by the international audience, uh, mainly because it's the, the scale uh, of the horrors isn't fully you know, uh, visible, because probably some of the people would think that, okay, Ukraine had already lived through some uh, occupation. We're speaking about the Crimea and the Donbas, but that's very different. What's happening now, it's very different and tragic. So these are two themes, and I do think we might separate them uh, and talk. Uh, but um, a bit elaborating more on the Ukrainian democracy, that's how I define that. Uh, but when we talked with the editor, that's exactly what the story is. Uh, because what was what is for me very important, you cannot take your society for granted. You know, Volodya, you know Ukraine. You think you know Ukraine. I thought I know Ukraine. I'm, I'm you know, I'm reporting this country for many years. It's my place. I'm. We did sociological research, so I do think I know Ukrainian society well. But I also think that it at such moments every society shows who what it is it doesn't mean it's maybe developing some people like to uh, say some words like it's you know um it's born i don't think it's born but i think that in a crisis moment people show who they are what really matters and how they act and that it's not really fully known because even if you're in kiev if you're a reporter in kiev 
still you need to go to the places. You need to go to Zaporizhia, to that area, to that area, and talk to the people. And what is the most striking story for me now, that all those people I talked, especially in the smaller areas, the people who are workers, who are, you know, peasants who are doing a very simple jobs you know not the people like us who who stay in Kiev who may be close to the cultural uh, circle a bit bohemian or maybe like political activist that those are the people who talk about the democracy the human rights and the rule of law in a way which is more clear and meaningful than any professor of any international law, you know, faculty, because they really can clearly describe why they are fighting for their right to choose, their right to hold elections and participate in the elections, either to choose a mayor or the uh, the president. Uh, how do they understood the rules and the international law and the fact that there is some civilized order they are fighting for? And that is, for me, a, an extremely important uh, mo- thing, thing and theme, uh, because it's we also we really often speak about Ukrainians appreciating freedom, but all, often it was always meant this rebellious freedom, you know, like the freedom which is to revolt, freedom against uh, authoritarian regime, and it's there. But when I speak with the people. Well, that would be a farmer in the village near Kharkiv or an engineer from Odessa. They see deeper. It's not just a revolt. They really can explain that it's freedom to make choices in your life, to see how my household should be developed, how I run the place. Uh, and that is for me uh, the most interesting thing, you know, like this kind of transformation of understanding of the freedom uh, as constructive force. Philosophers call it not freedom from, but freedom to. Absolutely. Yeah, freedom to do something. But at the same time, uh, I have the impression also that uh, there are still so many passive people. So the, it is still a minority in Ukraine, those people who are really form this society which is which is struggling uh, that's something I would largely disagree because it's there is a question what is what does it mean being passive to go to the uh, you know um, to volunteer in the army might be but I do think that first of all that could be always some percentage of the people who would stay passive and we have give them right to do so. But the people who I'm speaking about, that would be, for instance, I don't know how, uh, you know, describe, but I, you'll definitely understand me. So when I was in northern Saltivka, which is kind of the outskirts of Kharkiv, uh, the most damaged area there, but the outskirts of the large industrial town, and there would be a local electrician, you know, like the guy you kind of don't expect any political consciousness. Like, really, really, like an electrician in the suburban industrial town. And he might be very, you know, like, not super elegant, but he's there uh, already after some time walking in the patrols to be sure that the houses which has been destroyed, there is no looting there. And he would do that. And he would do it in a very peculiar, you know, part of the town, but he would do that. I won't need more from him, you know. It's also very, uh, so, so, but he understands his role. And uh, these roles, uh, that's what something I, sh- I, I should say that we should appreciate more. And honestly, I feel more honesty, uh, you know, and determination from many people like that. Uh, it was always in many wars, you know, that, you know, there are a lot of loud, loud voices in the capital, the further from the front line, but that would be there where, you know, people you don't expect, people you usually don't talk and don't ask, 
uh, that they are at heart of this war for me. We also have been to Northern South Africa recently, and uh, for our listeners, uh, I advise you to watch our podcast about Kharkiv. We called it Kharkiv, the fortress city. If you watch it on YouTube, you can see the Northern South Africa and this uh, uh, Natalia Ujvi Street, who, which is uh, which is horrible, which is horribly destroyed. There are sixteen floor buildings which are so much touched by by this. But I I was always so much you know you you always so much impressed with these people, uh, with people in Kharkiv, with people uh, in other cities, who are really combined their efforts in a in a in a volunteering work, and it's really not about ideas. They can be not about ideas, not about the language, not about cultural roots, because they are really united. Those who believe in God, those who do not believe in God, those military, those hipsters, etc. Right? But by the idea, you know, like I also like they maybe not about the identity in a way we th- think about that, you know, I mean religion, language or or in this kind of modern way how we describe identity, because I still think it's a part of the identity. But they are about the ideas. If they really, you know, I mean the the, the article which should be like I hope it's published very soon. Uh, my article starts with about a football young football player in in uh, Kharkiv who uh, really went to fight. Uh, he's 18. He's basically a teenager. That he doesn't want to have the president like Putin who just does what he wants. And he might formulate it this way, but in the end, this is an idea, you know, um, uh, and, and the idea of humanity is very much there. The idea that people can't, the, the, the civilians can't be killed, and we're here to defend that. This is idea. I think it's kind of largely the very humanistic and democratic ideas, which are there, and I don't think we must formulate them, to be honest. Uh, that would be enough. Um but another thing which I'm also following very much, uh, and because you mentioned this, uh, especially because you mentioned this story about some people passive, what is for me very different from 2014, uh, it's really the um, cooperation of the state and society. And, you know, Ukrainians finally owing their state, feeling the ownership for the state. And understanding that the state, it's not their adversary like it used to be, that the state is somebody to defend them and they are openly and they have the the, the, the trust to it. Because I think we've, we've been prior to the war together, we participated in a number of the joint research uh, with PIGL, where we, for instance, done numerous focus groups all over the country prior to the Ukraine's independence. And we always saw that there was this moment of distrust uh, of, of the state by the Ukrainians. And also that there would be these ideas of the individual heroes who doing something remarkable, but it was not really institutionalized. What I feel now is very different. So even the anti-corruption activist in Zaporizhia, who would be critical of his governor, he still would cooperate. And for instance, you know, we're speaking at the very sad time for us because, you know, like a couple of days ago, there were Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, the towns in the Donbass, uh, were, you know, destroyed. I won't say that they were really captured. They were destroyed first and then overtaken. Uh, but I remember when I was there in, in March, in the end of March, uh, talking to the governor, uh, Haidai, but also not just to him. Uh, to him, and to the local volunteers and the people who were, for instance, the head of the regional administration, of the city administration of the Severodonetsk, it was very clear that it works as a whole thing. You cannot totally, you know, kind of separate volunteers and the governor because it's up to the local authorities to say, do you need uh, the, uh, whether you need the generator, the a firefighter's truck or the ambulance what is the priority and if you're a great volunteer and and and, and often the, the 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 state won't be able to procure something so for instance the bulletproof west the state won't be able to procure that so they would need to work together and there would be some uh, safe passage created by the military for that to deliver and that's for us, uh, and, and as we talked quite a lot about the state as such, about the efficiency of the state, 
what is for me the another interesting uh, you know trend and story I'm following is this creation of the efficient state uh, in Ukraine when there are very clear rules, when the volunteers do not substitute the state, when there is a state, but there are the rules of people, of the civilians. Uh, my like nice example, I would say, we, we, we mentioned Northern Saltivka. And you know, like there we have this classical volunteer, a guy who is super politically active, very smart, just from the usual background, but you know, like being super active politically. But, and, and being in some way critical to the local authorities prior to the war, you know, he lived close to the Russian border, he was very keen about the Ukrainian identity. But what is interesting for me that at some point what he did, uh, when he understood that he was helping a lot of people to organize their life in the basement, and when he understood that he needed to evacuate hundreds of people, he literally took the phone and they called to the local villages head they didn't know in Poltava region, in the neighboring, neighboring region. And they called those people who are in the authorities and tell like, can you accept the people from Kharkiv? We would organize how to move, but maybe in your village you can host them. And those local mayors, villages head in the peaceful region of Poltava just said like okay we would accept like 50 we would accept this it was a clear cooperation because and that is something which which I also very very curious because there that's I think why one of the reason uh, Ukraine is uh, you know uh, becomes an incredibly efficient state structure society altogether I also remember, uh, for example, when you talk to this head of villages, we talked to several heads of villages near near Kiev, and you understand, for example, when the village was occupied, and uh, these people stayed in the village, they didn't move, they didn't uh, evacuate, so they kind of have felt this uh, this obligation to stay, risking their lives, and. Being a starost of the village, it's also it's a kind of a you're part of the community, but at the same time you're above the community. And the the reason why this person explained to us, his wife uh, told him, okay, let's let's move maybe, and he he would say, I would not, uh, no no he he would told her that I you, wouldn't you... leave uh, my people. Yes, and I yes. talked to so many yes. people like that. I talked to really really. A lot of heads of the villages all over the country, in Kherson region, in you know, in Kharkiv, in Chernihiv, in in Kiev, uh, where I followed that, and they all tell the same. They all tell like, I won't leave my people, and some of them were forced to leave. And by the way, they feel pain. They're very you know, like they're very disappointed. They're very worried that you know people would feel that they betrayed their communities. Unfortunately, I should say in some of the places when it was very critical. So, for instance, there was a case of one of the heads of the villages who had been, uh, you know, detained, who had been tortured, and he's kind of broke. He's really broken uh, emotionally. Uh, he's in re very poor health state. And unfortunately, his villagers feel he betrayed them because he's kind of okay, he's alive, it's okay with him. And we also, you know, it's not easy for us to interact, but what I then understood, like, so like why people like don't understand that some people, they, they better leave in some places, like in Kharkiv region, it's better leave. Uh, but I think it, it will take time because I, I, I then at some moment understood that many of those people who complain that things are not yet fixed or the starosta, the head of the village had left at that moment when I talked to them and when they were disappointed. They live also in very narrow space. They didn't know. They don't they might not know that there would be the case of Olha Sukanko in Motizhin, uh, the head of the village who has been tortured and executed together with her uh, husband and son, and that there are those cases. Because you know sometimes I really understand that we as journalists coming to the people and expecting them and sometimes disappointed, like I won't say disappointed, but like surprised with their answers. But we should also understand that a lot of people were cut 
from the communication for a long time. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have like mobile connection. They maybe sit for the first week uh, and they might not know. They heard about Bucha. They heard about other places, but they fully still, especially in that areas, do not understand how the scale of what has happened. What uh, did you talk to many people who were under occupation? What what are they telling about Russian soldiers about the meeting, meeting them, talking to them? So the, there are different uh, stories uh, because I, I do think that so it depends uh, on the region, uh, on the platoons. Uh, overall, I'm generally saying the Russian army, and we can you know already verify committed a lot of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And the reason for that is the lasting immunity for the Russian troops uh, uh, after what they've been doing in Syria, in Chechnya, the atmosphere of impunity and the fact that they do commit a lot of crimes, executing people, torturing, uh, unnecessary uh, use of extensive use of force where it's not needed. Uh, and I, I do hope and we would work that they would, you know, uh, the justice would be served and those people would be punished. Uh, but it also depended. So, for instance, unfortunately, the the Bucha, the Kiev region, uh, that was very rough, like really, really, really gruesome. Uh, also, the Russian soldiers in um, in Chernihiv as well. But you know, the closer to the front line, the worse it was, uh, and that was a really, really extremely brutal occupation. In Kharkiv uh, region, um, I cannot explain that. Uh, but there was like a horrible cases in Trostyanets, but in Kharkiv and in Sumy, my first, uh, not judgment, but hypothesis was that there were quite a few um, soldiers from so-called DNR, LNR, uh, so Russian-backed separatists. And I thought, that was be my, just my guess, you know, like my speculation, that for them, you know, like between Donetsk and Kharkiv, technically it's like a couple, few hundred uh, hundreds miles. It's uh, not that far. The terrain is the same. The language, you know, like it's it's like your place. So they they were not really that much annoyed by Ukrainians. You know, like for them, for Russian soldiers, Ukrainians were dehumanized for decades as you know Nazis or something. Uh, speaking Ukrainian was as if a sign of rebellion. For somebody from Donetsk, especially not the guys who are in their 18s, not the ones who grew up within the last eight years, you know, they do understand that in Kharkiv, religious can speak Ukrainian, and it doesn't mean that they are Nazis, you know, like, so I do think that was a part of how they, um, why they behave differently, but also I see the very different difference in the southern Ukraine. In southern Ukraine, there are really quite a lot of people from so-called so Donetsk People's Republic, and there are also two types. So I'm not speaking not about Russians, but I think it's very interesting distinctions for us. They There is a minority of the these determined ideological um, soldiers who, who are ruthless, and we have the cases when they should bear responsibility for tortures. But quite a huge, you know, uh, number of them, they are, they, uh, they're mobilized, you know, like just regular people who don't want to fight, but they would be in prison in Donetsk if they don't. So they basically do nothing. They are not very much ruthless. They really, like, don't fight a lot, but also they die in mass numbers because they're very poor fighters. In case of the Russian soldiers, um, again, like, Unfortunately, we can say that they truly believed in what they do. They did believe that came that, that they came to free Ukraine from uh, Nazis. They didn't fully understand what does it mean. But anything foreign and anything was foreign for them meant that. And uh, they were more brutal, less brutal. But in the end, you know... Uh, I we have one of the I talk myself to a lot of people, but I liked the the phrase which my colleague uh, Oliver Carroll, the the British journalist, written uh, the quote uh, from Yahidne, another village near Chernihiv, where people were, were like up to four hundred people were staying for one month in the basement, 
in the school basement. Um, so I, I was there as well. But in all his report, there was this phrase that the lady said that there was a nice guy, you know, let's say rather nice, okay, man. And he would still, you know, like giving the water, helping, would have this arrogant attitude and was kind of surprised why she's lady isn't thanking him for, you know, taking care, asking about water. And she said, like, you know, like, you're wearing my son's pants. Why should I thank you? You know, why should you thank you for you giving me something which belongs to me? So I do think that uh, there is a systematic responsibility of the Russian army as such. Um, but... There was a different. There, there is a different patterns uh, in the way they behaved, and it's also very important to explore and investigate why it happens in each part like that. What is the role of the commanders? Because there are two two versions, I think, of these atrocities. Is that one version is that commanders uh, uh, commanders kind of legalized it, authorized it. Another version is that. Uh, this was done by, uh, you know, by by certain cows, and just l- let me share uh, my experience. Is that in in one of the villages we talked to people who actually said that the commander was trying to stop looting, and trying even to punish those soldiers who who were looting. So we we can have se- several different scenarios depending on the commander. Sure, yes, but something else. Now we're working on this re- the reckoning project, Ukraine testifies, and we're talking to the lawyers, international lawyers who worked in Syria, who, uh, you know, analysts, uh, so I'm kind of having access to consult with international specialists on the war crimes. And it's true that the difference between the war crimes and the crime against humanity that, so for instance, that would be the bad soldier, you know, like he raped somebody and it was his fault. And commander didn't stop him. That is one case. Uh, but for instance, that would be the case when commander did something wrong, and that would be already the war crime—a clear war crime and not a you know wrongdoing by one soldier. But even if it's not written somewhere in Moscow as the strategy, but if we have the very same cases in Kiev, in Chernihiv in Kharkiv, in Kherson, there is something, there is a pattern that is the this impunity or the um, behavior which is normalized in that army. So it could be what I understand from the legal point of view, and I'm a journalist, first of all, I don't claim I know, it's still the responsibility of the commander to prevent so I don't care very much how did he behave. My question is what he really done, what he has done to prevent. Did he, ha- has, uh, did he try or have he prevented? Uh, maybe he is okay, but he did nothing. And I talked to one of the villages had in her son region, and she actually told about the case when there was this kind of a commander who even uh, for showing off for the villagers punished the guy who was drinking, who was, you know, robbing the villagers. But at the same time, in a different scene, she has seen how, you know, another team was, you know, taking the computers from the school, you know. So at some point he wanted to look good. But in a different point, he did something wrong. In Lukashivka, in the village near Chernihiv, we talked to a number of the people and also to the family. And there was this commander who at some point was drinking and crying and asking for an excuse. At the same time, we know he might have killed uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war. Uh, in kind of, uh, In another case, he behaved brutally. Is the fact that he at some point... F- felt connection to the family and, you know, drank something and asked for an apology. Uh, is it an excuse? I think it's generally good. You know, like, it's better the humans ask for an apology. Is it enough to spare him from the responsibility? Not at all, of course. And, of course, I would prefer the bad people, the evil people, at some point 
feel some guilt. Like it's something about the human nature as such. But I also very cautious that if some people regret, it's not an excuse. I I, I, I was following the the trial of uh, Shashimarin, this young guy uh, who was the first. Uh, sentenced to death for a murder of the uh, a pensioner, a retired man in Sumer region. It was a kind of a loud case because it was the first soldier. And sentenced. 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 Uh, sorry, I, I you said, said sentenced to death. Sorry, I really apologize. He was sentenced to. We, we don't have the death penalty. He was sentenced to the uh, lifetime imprisonment. So kind of till the. I, I meant like she need to, he need to spend the whole his life for in prison. It's still debatable to be honest because uh, honestly, uh, in in this particular case, there were a couple of people who told him he should do that. First time he didn't do that, and next he did that. But it was really not impossible impossible to prove that he might he 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 had a choice because the 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 lawyer explains that you know. If he didn't do that, another high, more high-ranking officer would punish him. We don't. It didn't look so, but I think he regretted. No, he regretted it. He really is very young. He's twenty-two. He looks like a schoolboy. You know, like I think like everybody in the courtroom, from Ukrainian journalists to prosecutors themselves and the judges, despite of their decision kind of behaved as if they feel pity about the, this guy. Uh, but he did that with with the reason that he just didn't want to take any other decisions. You know, like he didn't want to take the responsibility for doing differently, uh, which is more or less for me the crime of indifference. So it's like, like banality of evil. Yeah, it's a real, yeah, yeah, a real banality of evil because he was, and, and, and I think it's not just a banality of evil because if we're speaking about Eichmann, you know, like he was the conscious guy who did it for being a good bureaucrat. And this guy represents for me a lot of the things what modern Russia is. Not really just this cruel part which Putin represents. I'm speaking about the society, but indifference. In a way that nothing depends on me. Doesn't matter. They told me kill, I kill. It's not me. It doesn't matter. I, you know, like not connecting your actions with the real life uh, results. As if anything I do, even if I kill person, doesn't matter. I just do something. It is outsourced. The responsibility is outsourced. Yeah. So it's it's not me. It's somebody else. And what what strikes me when I hear people in Moscow during all this Fox Populi is that many people are saying, okay, this decision was taken by the government by Putin. If if it's taken by by Putin, then it's correct. But let me ask uh, how Ukrainians. What is Ukrainians' attitude to these Russian soldiers? Let let us continue this story, because in my experience, to just to continue this kind of uh, when when they see these young Russian soldiers. I I felt that uh, these Ukrainians who were under occupation they feel they don't feel really hate they feel like kind of a, maybe disgust maybe even pity for these young young people do do you also have this yeah, impression Absolutely uh you know I I thought about that and I do think that with with time the the hatred would be there there would be hatred in the society towards russians you know it's inevitable it is the there of course is there. Yeah. but what is really interesting about the people who lived under the occupation they really feel disgust uh they feel sometimes pity but especially i paid attention uh to that in kharkiv region not just about the russian soldiers because there it's really like less than 20 miles to the Russian border. Uh, and that's why I ask these questions like a lot to uh, whether the people talk to their relatives. And people really tried. They really tried to talk to their uh, relatives. And then it's like really speaking up with a, to the crazy neighbor that at first, or even a relative, you know, it could be a neighbor or relative, when you feel that somebody of people you know but who is not super close to you, but whom you know, 
you work with him, you do something. And at the very beginning, you try to find the reason to help because you're a responsible person. So you try to explain, maybe you need to help financially, maybe you need to calm down. For instance, your neighbor is beating his wife. You know, like, so you try to calm down, maybe find a doctor if person is addict or something like that. And as, after some moment, you try and try and try. And then you're like, I give up. It's not my life. I see I cannot influence. It doesn't work. I spend too much energy. It's not my final responsibility in the end. It maybe was, but there is a moment when it's not my, you know, like son or my daughter or my mother. So maybe I need to stop and take care about the closest, the most darling to me, and just stop and build a world. And know and accept those that, you know. So I felt this feeling that people feel like, okay, I think we just need to forget they are there. So it's really this, a bit of the disgust, a bit of the pity. But I feel it was quite cool if you really speak about atmosphere. Not really this energetic attitude. But really when like people worked hard and said like, enough. And that's what I often felt. I'm not really speaking now about the soldiers, of course. I'm more coming about their attitude towards Russian society. And like, let's bring the wall. Let's just make these people don't harm us. Let those, you know, drunk neighbor not hurt my son, not hurt my family. You know, like wherever he does at home, unless it's about us, let them do it there. We don't want, it's not right, but let us let them do it there. And I do think for me that was this description of the relations between the societies in the area where the Ukrainians are very close to Russians due to the geographic proximity. Let's talk about uh, maybe about the, 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 the subject that we touched upon the first, this local democracy, this crossroads democracy. So do you think we are living in a in a situation when uh, more Ukrainians reinvent their country? Yes, uh, because, how to say it, you know, like, um, I think for the last years, a lot of things you don't really fully understand why you need them. Uh, I talked to the rabbi in Dnipro, who was born, one of the chief rabbis, who was born in New York. And he moved to Ukraine in early 90s, stayed there, an incredibly vibrant community. But what he told it, like when he was living in the U.S., of course, he knew about democracy. But for him, democracy was about the good life. You know, people choosing a better life. He didn't kind of think big. And now I think like democracy for me is a right to choose, a sacred right to choose. And that he said, like, that's how I understood it. Because the right for cho to choose turned to be a vital right. Because in the end, what Ukrainians are deprived by, what Russia wants to deprive Ukrainians from, is the right to choose how to live, how to govern the country, how to make choices about everyday life, in your private life, in your intellectual life, or at all, like, who would be your mayor, governor, president, what language I would speak, you know, how I should run my business. So the things started to matter. So people understood, first of all, the role of the state, you know, why you need the, because you can't, like even the volunteers who was, who was very antagonistic, he really understand, he won't fix the uh, water supply without the government. A volunteer won't build a bridge. The hospital can't, depend on you know like gracious support of, of great people so there is understanding from the very active civil society leaders that there is no way they cannot just have this antagonistic relations and also the we talked about the people who who the local authorities who couldn't leave their uh, communities and the communities should understand why they need somebody why they need the guy in the village who would run them, because there should be somebody to negotiate with the Russians whether they have an access to cemetery or not. There would be somebody who would kind of represent them. People understood the role of the representation. Therefore, they remembered all of a sudden who are their local MP, why the local MP was there or not, because there should be somebody, you know, like it's people's power, but the idea of the representation 
uh, that there should be. So I do think this this really uh, kind of the understanding of everything. At the same time, the government understood, the government official understood why they need journalists, why they need somebody to tell the truth, why they need somebody to report, uh, why they need those people. You know, because before they thought like, oh, there are those people who are just criticizing us. And now, I mean, it's easier for me now to go to the, you know, the most closed structure, like the army, the security service, the police, and to tell, like, can you give me data? I'm searching this story. And they know why this story should be told. Um, so I think that that's working in, in, in these two directions. I would love to, to hear that, that transformation. And maybe you're absolutely right in this. Because, uh, for example, from our trip to Chernihiv, I was also impressed by two facts the first fact is that the the local the local volunteers are very very critical of, of the mayor uh, of the uh, municipal government and we understand why because there were lots of questions uh, before this war who the mayor is and what is his his background but at the same time you talk to the mayor people who are, of course I mean tell tell you the opposite but they are trying to do the same thing. I mean, they're trying also to do something which normally civil society does. Like go and, for example, collect the witnesses, uh, or witnessing of the people who were under occupation, etc. Uh, so maybe indeed we are in the situation when these two functions are, are colliding, but I would, I would not be that optimistic. I think that there is still a long way to go. I do think it's a still long way to go, but I would be very cautious about people like us because it's also very much depends on how Kiev-based journalist, publicist and like known activist would frame that because I do think that it could develop in different direction if all of a sudden, you know, like saying like established activist and the voices would go back to their role thinking that like without appreciating this cooperation saying like, okay, it's time, it's time again to be, you know, those people who say that it should be done differently uh, without bearing... You're talking about certain arrogance of civil society. Yep. No, I fully agree with no, you. No, I but, mean... I, but I meant like in this regard in particular, you know, there are people who are loud and I do think it's partially of our responsibility. Uh, might I sound very optimistic, but I see that. And I see it there. So I rather think that this trust could be destroyed, undermined, or strengthened. And by giving these examples, I have the story, I wonder if I do that. But I really had this idea that like, I need to bring those people together as a journalist because I do see an incredible volunteer who does incredible work but is horribly critical of this head of the community who has been for one day captured and, you know, uh, for one day captured and tortured and is unable to come back. And they, the, the volunteer is very critical. They don't talk to each other. And I do think like, but it's exactly the role of the media to talk to both and tell, you know, like tell, maybe explain, you know, like saying like, Really, the guy just can't, you know, like he physically, he's not mentally able. There is something he can't do that. And, you know, like, of course you expect from that man to act differently and he's alive and uh, thanks God he's alive. I had recently the case of the, in Kremenchuk, where there was this horrible attack on the shopping mall. And also, uh, we had a very interesting discussion in our team because we had a journalist who was going there and I was referring why she needs to talk to the uh, firefighters. You know, like, because, you know, they're witnesses, why they're recording matter for cases in the court. And she was saying that the people were a bit confused uh, and uh, disappointed that the firefighters didn't rush into the fire and there were some volunteers emotionally um, you know helping the people and I really was saying like you need to talk to both you're a journalist you talk to the firefighters let them tell their story and the people their story and that's how it was because I do think somehow we independent reporters 
somehow moved a bit too much to the position of defending peoples. The interesting fact that in one of our, in, in our team, in the team of our researchers, which working on our project, one guy, uh, because we had most of our people are journalists, but one is a former retired firefighter. And he tell like, stop! But actually, firefighters did exactly what they should to do according to the protocol. There is no way they go there bare hand, you know, like without the equipment or so. And then I thought like maybe it's also the task for the local journalists not be in this, you know, moment when this trust is there. And I know you care a lot about that as well. That in this moment when you talk to both and understanding the effort of the local authorities there, not go back to the antagonistic relations. I'm not saying that you need to praise the government. But I think you need to create a place in the communities where those people with their offenses are speaking together. Uh, because we've been to the places when the mayor was gone and people didn't know what happened to that person and then the mayor is back. And when you talk to the mayor, he has his story. And it might be perfect, but I do think that it's also the very clear role we have uh, journalists, media, local media, in this fragile moment to appreciate that. It's easier in Kiev just to go back, like, I'm cool, independent reporter, I can say this, this, but, like, talk. I, I've never seen the local Ukrainian authorities being that open and, uh, you know, like, frank. I do think that the, I, I think that the bad people are gone. Honestly, my, my, my assessment is that those people who are corrupt, who are wrongdoers, they left. You know, like those people who stayed mainly, they take quite a difficult decision to stay. Yeah, they transform themselves maybe. But what you're describing is, I think it's very important because indeed for many decades, many years, Ukrainian civil society was considering itself as a kind of a, an opponent to the government, a fighter against the government. And the government was uh, mutually responding with, with the same, uh, the same with media. And now we come uh, to, uh, to an interesting, very interesting conclusion. Uh, and maybe there is something that it's also Ukrainian experience, contrary to many countries in the world, where this uh, confrontation is increasing. In our case, it is really, there is a chance that it will be decreasing because we understand that Okay, civil society, media and government, they still po uh, make a part of, of the whole thing. Let me maybe ask you a very, uh, uh, of course, very, very global question, not, not connected with, uh, with the field reporting, but as a citizen, as a journalist, uh, and maybe this is the last question, what do you feel, where is this war is going? Um. I'm sometimes asked uh, when I'm kind of asked by the internationals, you know, what are the plans or they're strategizing about like, can we help Ukraine this way? What if in three years? And I honestly say it's like, it depends on what we do now. It's very easy for somehow, some, sometimes I stop even these discussions because it's very trendy and looks smart. Let's strategize what would happen to Ukraine in five years. Because, you know, you look smart when you think long term but i also say like depending on what's happening you give this weapon you invest this and that could be over by that time you don't do this we we speak about the different scenario so i do think that the it's really that moment when you need to strategize but you cannot not care about the current moment what help would be there now financial help whether the ukrainian economy collapse the military help that would also depend. I strongly believe that the second phase of war, as I understand the army calls it this way, uh, by which Ukrainian government means that returning the territories uh, which were taken after the February 24th, that this phase of war might be won by, uh, by winter, by this winter. It's technically possible. It's doable. Okay, we can leave like some places in the Donbass, but I'm speaking largely about like Kherson, the regions in Zaporizhia. I think it should, it could be done. It's really the question of the military strategy. 
I think military-wise, Russia is fighting in a very stupid way. They do not gain. They destroy. Therefore, I think like four months for destroying the uh, Severodonetsk, yeah, it's enough. They did it, but they didn't capture it. They destroyed. Have they gained what they gained? They gained city with baton. Like no people were there any longer. They managed to destroy it, but nothing. I don't see that they are gaining much in the south. We're speaking about the counter-offense of the Ukrainian troops. It's difficult. Ukrainian army haven't yet um, really was successful in the counter uh, counterattacks. You know, the, the places Ukraine regained mainly was because partially, to a large extent, Russian retreated. Uh, with the reason, not just retreated, there was fight. Uh, but like overtaking like Kherson would be difficult. So I think these are the, um, these are the things. And it's not about the naivety. Ukrainians see that this war could be win faster if there are particular things Ukraine have. Why then we should spend too much time and you waste so much time on the theoretical discussion about how long this war could be? I was preparing for a long war. I, I knew always it won't be fast. Nobody here expected it could be fast. But now I see there is a chance. And even the way Russia... Look, Ukraine, Russia can destroy it a lot. But throwing randomly rockets uh, and all kind of weapon all over the place doesn't bring Russia anywhere. You know, destroying a shopping mall in Kremenchuk, what military gain for Russia is there? Literally nothing. Like, they, they gained nothing with that. Uh, they um, and, and therefore, I I think that's where the where where, where it's going, and uh, not theorizing, but using every minute we have at the moment, not to think theoretically. What would happen, but like do everything possible, and put all your intellectual energy into taking the decision how it could be differently, as fast as possible. Thank you very much, Natalia. We had Natalia Humenyuk, my favorite Ukrainian reporter, one of the greatest Ukrainian journalists. Uh, she's the founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab and of uh, Hromatske Independent Ukrainian Media. This was an Explaining Ukraine podcast by ukraineworld.org. Follow us on social networks. You can also support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We sent a big amount of your support to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian resistance. Follow us on social networks, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, uh, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts. Stand, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.